Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to this episode of the Black Tuesday Podcast. I'm your host, Terrence Vicks. When I look at journalism, it is one of those things that, as a writer, I struggle with the fact that I've seen it take a precipitous fall in the last decade plus, 20 years, and it is probably at the lowest point I've ever seen it. To discuss journalism and the connection to modern-day politics, we have a writer, Lisa Solid, join us. Good morning, Lisa. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. I am actually a former journalist. I worked for newspapers um, for a while in my youth and then moved to magazines and um, even um, covered aspects of the Obama campaign for the Huffington Post when they were doing that sort of thing. Um, so that was, uh, you know, I've sort of been in and out. My my expertise has always been in features. I think I, I liked that more and realized young that I preferred uh, the writerly style of features because I think I'm a writer first um, and have been a journalist second in that sense. Um, I remember being extremely um, affected by the Pentagon Papers. I'm old enough to remember them um, and uh, old enough to remember when Nixon resigned and Ford pardoned him. And um, old enough, of course, to remember all the president's men. And I, that really uh, pumped me up in terms of thinking about becoming a journalist um, because I, I really saw the freedom of the press and the press's responsibility to get to um, the truth as absolutely essential. In a democracy, but you are right. The past uh, several years, um, especially since Fox News came um, on the scene, has been rather devastating for journalism. And I don't, um, I don't understand why there's not more pushback from the press, the mainstream press in general, um, the major newspapers, major television stations against a station that is effectively propaganda for one party and one view 
and is something that is new to us. Um, Fox News is very new in the scheme of, um, of of media. Now we've always had you know conservative newspapers and conservative magazines, but there's something different about print journalism versus um, versus television, um, and, and people are you know tuning more and more into TV. It's easier sound bites. I don't have to read. I don't have to think, and things are fed to them. And Fox is feeding them inaccuracies, and I don't think there's enough pushback at all um, to the fact that they are effectively supporting one candidate for president over another and other conservative candidates in other races over others. Now, you, you mentioned your start with the Pentagon Papers, and you mentioned your start, like, your start of interest in everything happened with the resignation of Richard Nixon. Now, Kind of want to start in the 80s where mm-hmm. there was such an abundance of magazines and newspapers. How did you see the transition from the Nixon era as far as journalists and writing to the 80s where it was just the advent of being somewhat TV became a little more uh, prevalent as far as in interviewing writers and having writers on as far as news broadcasts? You know, I don't really remember when that started. It's sort of interesting to watch it now to see journalists interviewing journalists. I'm not sure that's always the best way to go. Um, I mean, I can see if somebody breaks a story and then the television news wants to get them to talk more about that story. But there's a lot of sort of pals interviewing pals stuff and I don't really know when that started. I don't. I don't recall it. Um, during the 80s, I was having in the 80s and 90s. I was having children, and I'm not saying I wasn't paying attention. I was, but I don't. I don't remember um, that transition specifically. I mean, what I do remember is we used to get our trusted news from what we thought were nonpartisan uh, TV journalists or. TV talking heads, Cronkite, et cetera. Um, The Internet has changed things. Uh, There's a competition, and I think more than new magazines, I mean, magazines have always opened and fallen and opened and failed ever since I can remember. But um, I think the Internet is the beginning for me of when things started to change, sort of this awareness that everybody had a voice, which is not a bad thing, of course, but there's a lot of misinformation. And I, I, I think that's more responsible than, than other things. But, um, I mean, I, I don't know how I got by without the Internet. I, I'm as addicted to it as anybody else is now at this point. But um, I, I think it's done a disservice. It, it's, it, it hasn't. It hasn't given us any more information without giving us also more inaccurate information, and that's a problem. I remember the mid-'90s when the Internet boom started, and you would see a lot more blogs. You'd see a lot more, you know, writing. And like you said, with the advent of Fox News, that's when, you know, you see MSNBC take off. You see CNN start to go more towards opinion-based shows, and 
I honestly think that there's a point where, to me, outside of, you know, playing sports, being a writer is something that I always wanted to do because it's something that, and I remember being in high school and having one of the strictest, most unforgiving teachers, but he cared. And it was like he pushed for better and made me a better writer. And I don't think that there's that push to work on the craft as much as the push to want to be famous. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. For me, it was all about craft always. I had a similar, I mean, I wanted to be a writer since I was eight years old. I published my first article when I was 17. Uh, I did a, worked for a, a school newspaper, worked for a local newspaper, interned at other newspapers. Um, I was always still writing um, both essays, nonfiction, and short stories, which were the first things I, I published in terms of fiction. But I had a teacher like you did, too. She was my senior high school year teacher, and she was my English teacher. And um, she came right out and said, I'm going to give you two grades, one for content, one for grammar. Up until that time, I don't think I'd ever been taught grammar. I just sort of absorbed it. And when I got my first A over F, I said, what? is going on here. And she said, you had a commas place. I didn't even know what a commas place was. So, long story short, I learned grammar and I learned how to craft my language so that it was powerful and meaningful and also accurate. And that's what made the difference. You know, I don't think I would have felt confident uh, in being a writer and then an editor, which I was for many years, without her guidance. But no, I do. I don't think that you know. It's fiction writing. I think still stands for the most part. Not always. I mean, there's a lot of crap out there, but you know who the good people are. And um, and I think I'm really thrilled that more writers of color uh, are being published. But um, but in journalism, it does seem that first is best, and best doesn't matter. Um, and you can tell the difference when you read something in the Atlantic or in Harper's that's long and thoughtful and it's taken weeks to, or even the New Yorker, um, when, when you read a really beautiful piece of thoughtful journalism, whether it's investigative or whether it's an essay that's tied to a larger thing, but so much, and I found this too when I started blogging for Open Salon, which was a, a part of Salon back in the day, um, you know, so much of it was writing about something that was, oh, I don't know, exciting or weird or creepy um, versus something serious and important. And all of it was just, you know, the writing was mediocre. <laughs> when everybody's a writer, a writer, the writer's going to be mediocre. That's just the way it is. It's like, you know, remember Bob Ross, that guy used to do terrible paintings on, uh, yes. on television? Yeah, well... That's what I think of when I think of writers now. I think they're all Bob Ross. And, you know, some of them are Da Vinci and Monet and Bonnard, but a lot of them are Bob Ross. And there's a lot of outlets for mediocrity. Um, on the other hand, it does give people voices that might not have had voices before and gets people a start in the business. But I'm not sure... And this has always been true. I'm sure it is. Uh, but that most people can tell the difference between writing that's good and bad. Um, I mean, when only, what is it? I don't know, 60, 
I can't even remember the number. It was from Philip Roth years ago of how many people actually read fiction in general and how many people in the United States actually read a novel in the past year. Um, you see what, what gets published and you see what gets read. And there's a lot of genre fiction. There's a, Now there's this plethora of, of uh, political books. You know, How many books have been written about the Trump administration and we're not even finished with it? So I don't know. I think there's a there's always a, a, a it's a, it's a snobbish thing to say. I think, and I will admit to being a snob when it comes to writing. But there's you know, there's a lot of dreck. But there's always been a lot of dreck, and it's always also been a matter of who you know and who you connect with, and who your parents are, or who sat at your dinner table with your parents. Now look at somebody like Ronan Farrow. I'm not saying he's not a good journalist. He is, but he could have labored in obscurity for a million years if it hadn't been for his connections, right? Pretty much. I mean, for me, it's... He jumped from obscurity to fame in two minutes. Two minutes. And for me, it's when I look at it, I look at journalism, and I look at it in, in just writing in general, where there are so many talented writers who go through journalism school that end up leaving the business because of the at times oversaturation of like you said the mediocre and I'm going to be honest there's so much mediocre writing as far as in every genre fiction investigative there is. sports there like, is sports is how I became how I got to the spot initially and there is this is so much it's awful it's it's just like People, if you write an op-ed, which, which is fine, I do, we all do, but make sure there's a substance to it. Don't just use an op-ed to slam someone with no facts. If you're going to try to dismantle a thought or dismantle a belief, present evidence. Those don't just write out of rage and write angry. You write out of rage and you write angry. It just, it kind of makes the person that you're, writing about or attacking more likable than you. And it's just, there's such a lack of attention to detail. I don't disagree. I think there is too. And I think that's why I think when it, when something's really good, you stop and you go, wow, this is really good um, because you're so inundated. Just an aside on sports, um, in, in France where I lived for some time, they don't have uh I don't know what you call it, callers or sports or the color. They don't have commentary on the sports. It's quiet. And um, I always thought that was just brilliant. Why not just let the guys play the game um, rather than, you know, picking apart every single solitary second? Anyway, it just struck me when I lived over there what a, what a difference it was in terms of how we do sports. So in that sense, there's a lot of extra stuff that's not needed. Um, but, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. In terms of... Um, To get back on, uh, maybe on another topic, in terms of media responsibility, I think what's happened, and I don't know if it's a direct product of Fox or if it's a product of Trump or if it's something that's always been there. Like when you think about racism, you know, well, it's always been there. Trump's just given us permission to be racist, right? He's just given us permission to vent our darkest fears and angers and ugliness in ways that people 
tried not to before. They did, of course, but um, but now they have a huge platform and they have the imprimatur of the um, of the president. So that's that. But I do feel that in this in the last four years, the the press has really let us down in terms of exposing Trump for what he is and exposing his administration for what it is. The numbers of people in his administration who are criminals who've been indicted or convicted. Um, what he said yesterday about not accepting the results of the election. Um, this has been said before, but I think it needs to be said over and over and over again. When Clinton was found to have lied about a sexual act with an intern, a hundred newspapers demanded his resignation. And nobody's demanding Trump's resignation. Why is that? Are they afraid of consequences? Are they lost their courage in general? Do um, they not think his, they can't not think his crimes are worse than any crimes that have come before, um, at least in, in my lifetime and I think in modern um 20th century history. So I wonder why we aren't seeing the kind of ex- we're seeing exposés like the like the Pentagon Papers from individual newspapers, you know, Julie Brown and about Epstein and the New York Times and about with Fahrenheit, etc. But we're not. Maybe it's because there's too much. Maybe it's because there's too much media all the time. It's insulting, assaulting us. And so one huge story hits, and then we take our breath, and then another huge story hits, and then we take our breath, and another huge story hits. So there's no sense of collective outrage that can last because it's always being hit by a new outrage. But I really do think that the press has just let us down, and I was a member of it, and still in many ways consider myself a journalist. I mean, I still write for publications that are journalistic. And I'm, I'm, I'm horrified. <laughs> I really am. And I just don't, I don't know how we got to this place. In the worst administration, maybe ever, um, where the press seems to have abdicated responsibility for being horrified. I, mean, I feel like everybody I know is horrified, but I'm sure a lot of Americans aren't because they don't pay attention for a million reasons. But why aren't the press more horrified? That is a good question. I think we're going to step out and take a super quick break. You are listening to the Black Tuesday podcast on the FPC radio network. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are back. The Black Tuesday Podcast. Here on Space Lisa's solid. Lisa, you mentioned why the press aren't horrified. Now, to me, there is a prevailing thought that you have an administration that is abysmal and you have the mistreatment of Americans left, right, and center, but you also have abundant stories. You have stories to be written, and the pessimist or the cynic in me thinks that the reason why some of the press may not be horrified is because this current administration is keeping them flush with content ideas. Hmm. Well, that doesn't say very much about them, does it? I mean, if they, can, I mean, I remember working on Deadline. I remember, you know, busting my ass trying to get things um, out, and um, daily reporters or reporters for major newspapers are supposed to be. They have a beat, number one, but number two, they're supposed to be sort of hit with multiple stories at once, and. If their attention span is as bad as the American people's attention span, then that's not good, is it? I mean, we're suffering from a collective um, overload of stuff, and some people shut down, which is understandable. I mean, I think all of us want to sometime or another, but the press can't do that. They can't. Their responsibility is not to be overwhelmed, is not to feel inundated, is not to write a story and move on to the next story. That's their, their, that's like saying, well, you know, your surgeon, he did an operation and then he had another operation, but he just, you know, he just didn't really want to do it or he did it badly because he was tired or there were too many operations in a day. I mean, people can't, we can't, we can't do that. We can't accept the fact that, that Trump hits them with a story every day because also some of those stories are, are crap. And the, and journalists are supposed to pick the you know the pick the seeds from the chaff. They're not supposed to um, treat every story as if it's equal. You know, daily reporting on his idiocies during the uh, the height of the of the virus, um, you need to pull out the the crap. And, and talk about these these headlines that that quote him as if what he's even when he's saying something that's not true do a huge disservice instead of saying you know President Trump feels like you know all black people need to be killed they should say you know in a stunning 
admission of racism, you know, Trump says that blah, blah, blah. There needs to be some sort of context. And what they do is they just quote him from his press releases or his press conferences. And so what he's saying is reasonable. It's very animal farm, I think. Um, it's very 1982, 1984. I mean, it's, it's, it's strange that they do that. I, I don't think that's acceptable. And I think a lot of people feel the same way, but I don't, you know, but then you're on the Twitter version, right? And so you have all these like minds and then you have the other, but, um, but I haven't done a lot of man on the street interviews, but when you think about the man on the street interviews that the press does, you know, they're always, they're always slanted, which is so strange. I mean, this whole, you know, Trump voters in a diner, meme that has been going on and on it's like enough and now they're you know the press is talking about biden being late for events i mean is this really we are we are at the precipice of the apocalypse and and joe biden's been late a couple of times so when everything matters nothing matters don't you think i I don't know maybe that's no i agree it's it's stunning to watch how you will see members of the media will sit there and they will act outraged. Like one thing I cannot understand is after the election, throughout all the lies and throughout everything that's happened with this administration, the White House correspondence dinner still happened. And there was a picture of Sarah Sanders who spent the entirety of her career as the press secretary lying, out and out lying to people. And then you right. see her, some of her strongest critics, be it either Anderson Cooper or people from cable news media, taking pictures with her, like smiling and arm in arm. If you really truly had that big of a dislike for someone based on the fact that they're deceiving the American people, you wouldn't be wanting to take a picture with them. Yeah, I don't understand that coziness. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. Um Especially when there were, you know, reams and reams of stories about her lies. Uh, that, that no, that doesn't make sense. The the relationship is rather astonishing. But you know, there was a certain, a certain number of people who were lauding the question asked by I don't know how you pronounce his name, Karim Brian Karim or Karem, yeah. about whether um, Trump would accept the results of the you know the, the election, and. You know, of course, his answer was shocking. Trump's answer was shocking. But my my first thought was, why did you even ask that question? Would you ever have asked that question of Obama or George Bush or Ronald Reagan? I mean, no. I mean, that's that's an, that's crazy talent. That's the when did you stop beating your wife question? It's like, why would you ask somebody who's clearly shown a contempt for voters, a contempt for mail-in voting, a contempt for the truth of ballots? You know, who who says that he deserves eight more years because, you know, everybody screwed this up, for, the first four up for him. Why would you ask him a direct, a direct question that he and, – and act like that's news. It's not news. It's not new. And that kind of question should, never, should not have been asked. And to me, that's the sort of gotcha thing that's meaningless. That, that's, I, I, don't, I didn't find him brave for asking him that question. I didn't think it was meaningful. And Trump's answer was what any intelligent person would have expected him to say. We knew. 
I mean, there's, there's, it's, these revelations are never new. What we need to be doing is piling on and piling on evidence to support everything that's been revealed about this presidency. And instead, every horrible new thing or horrible thing that comes out is treated as new, even if it's not new, even if it's just an extension of some other horrible thing. He's always been racist against Muslims and against black people and against Hispanics. And now he's obviously anti-Semitic. But, you know, the, the, the detention camps, the, the way he's handled the virus is all part and parcel about how he thinks of anyone who's other, who's not him, who's not a white, rich man. So it's all, a, all about othering us, women, Jews, blacks, Hispanics minorities of any kind, the poor, the the disabled. He's been othering us since the moment he opened his mouth before that with Barack Obama and the birth certificate. And so this should be a compilation of othering, not each othering used as a new piece of news. Does that make sense? I think that's the the part I find most shocking. I, I look at the president and I look at his his media like he conducts these rallies and you know their lies and some media will cover it. I'm like he's lying to you. These provable facts that are lying and right. they'll cover it. But now they have tried the new thing. Well, we're, we're going to step out now because he's starting to he lied the moment he started talking. Why even have a camera there if you know he's not going to tell you the truth? Well, it's an interesting question. Do you cover him even if he's lying? Do you call him out on his lies as they happen? Or do you decline to cover him? If you decline to cover him, then are you are you not exposing his lies? I mean, people like Daniel Dale have done an amazing service, but we know that because we're in it. Do Does the average person on the street know how many lies Trump has told? Do they read the Washington Post and see the compilation of the lies? Do they look at Daniel? Do they see the fact-checking? Um, and we have another moment coming up with the debates. How do we handle his lies? He's going to be on stage with Joe Biden. I don't know. How are we supposed to ha- How is Chris Wallace in the first debate going to handle those lies? If it were me, I would have, when he does these rallies, I'd have... If they're going to to broadcast them, have a fact checker sitting right there, right there, and be able to have a scroll at the bottom of the screen. This was a lie. This was a lie. This is this was a lie. And just, you know what, have a scroll at the bottom of the screen that will say what the truth is and keep a running tab of the lies in, like, a little separate box. I mean, it's... I don't, I don't disagree, but you're still not going to reach the people that are at the rally. True. I don't like, think. A lot the of people them, who choose to show up, yeah. Like a, lot, a whole lot of people who choose to show up at a rally, it's, we're at the point where they can't be helped and they're going to do what they're going to do. And I've always found it strange that a lot of Trumpers are from rural environments and these are the same people that he would never allow into his properties or he wouldn't cross the street to talk to. But yet they are fiercely devoted to this man, and it's weird to me. It is. I mean, I don't think he'd cross the street to talk to me or you or 99% of the population. I mean, he has a very close 
cadre of multimillionaires, powerful people, and those are the only people he has any respect for. He doesn't have respect for people who don't have money because they're obviously a failure, uh, who aren't successful because they're a failure, or women or black people who complain because they don't have, you know, as much as he does. Um, no, it's very odd that poor white people um, who've been steeped in poverty for years or, or are middle class at the best would glom on to a, a man who's had everything handed to him. I mean, you know, I've heard theories that everybody wants to be rich, right? So we like to give the rich a pass because maybe we'll be rich someday. Um, and that, you know, many people's retirement plan is winning the lottery. So this fascination with richness, I think, is part of it. I think they think, well, he's rich, so he's better than us, so we should look up to him. I mean, we value money an awful lot in this society. And people who don't have it get shat upon all the time. And yet, rich people get away with stuff all the time. And look how long Jeffrey Epstein got away with, with what he was doing. Decades. You know, look at, look at the people in, his, in Trump's cabinet who've been criminals for years. And yet, they still got to fall up, as they say. They still got to get bigger and bigger salaries and more power. Um, and yeah, now a bunch of them have been convicted, but I don't know. I don't know. There's this fascination with money and power, and I guess the powerless feel like if you've got money and power, you deserve it? I don't know. I I, I don't know. Um it's it's a it's a bizarre concept. I mean, these people are directly voting against their their self interest. But as I said on Twitter, so are any Jews, any Black people, any women, any Hispanics, any disabled, any other immigrants. You know, if they vote for him, they're voting against themselves. But people still do. They still do. Maybe in smaller numbers than than white men, particularly, who seem to support Trump. But people who are directly attacked by him still vote for him. And that's the part that what I... What do they get? They, exactly. It's it's more of the... They are so hung up on just the... what like, I don't know. I don't see the attraction to voting for somebody who has no respect for you as a person. Like like you said, 99% of the population he doesn't care about. Let's just be honest. No. He says things to engender some sort of devotion, even mm-hmm. though he will look down his nose at the average American, but yet 60 million people voted for him. And I just, I just don't understand. Like, but I'm also past the fact of saying, Oh, you know, try to, con- try to convert Trump voters. No, this, no. We need to strengthen no. the base here and kind of move forward. And if he has supporters, let them be because they're not going to change their minds. We're not going to convert anybody. No, we aren't. But do you think that Trump gives people permission to hate? I mean, they, do you think he gives them permission to dislike the same people he does or to make fun of people or to make themselves feel, you know, this whole Southern strategy with Lyndon Johnson that, you know, even if you're a poor white guy, you're better than a poor black guy, right? So you've got somebody under you. Do people need that? Do people need to feel superior or do they need to feel reasons to dislike people? Um, or do they really feel that their power is slipping away? 
you know, of course, I, you know, the poor have never had much power, but maybe just being white was enough, and now our white men was enough, and now they see that changing. It is changing. I mean, women are already the majority in the United States. Um, but I don't know. I, I just, it's, it's very hard to understand the need to hate, um, especially when we're in this, you know, triple crises right now. And, you know, climate change, the virus, the economic instability, the possibility of, you know, war. Um, and yet we're still paying attention to um, the guy who lives next door who pisses us off. Or the black guy that got, we think got our job. Or the woman who decided not to stay home and raise babies. I think what it is I, is with him, it is... He has made hate mainstream where he has emboldened so many people to act out, but they mm-hmm. fail to realize that he has the protections of his position, Secret Service, mm-hmm. various other people, where the average person, sometimes they receive real-world and immediate consequence, and they they fail to understand that there's a severe disconnect where they really can't go and start talking, you know, being overtly hateful and not having someone say anything to them where he lives in this bubble where he can say something, he gets occasionally called out on it, but then he'll double down and just, then you have his defenders. Now, before we get out of here and uh, I'd like to thank you for your time. Where can people read any of your work and interact with you on Twitter. Well, it's just my name, Lisa Solid. Um, LisaSolid.com has some links to my past writings. I am active on Twitter, maybe more than I should be. Um, and, you know, both political and personal. I don't think anybody doesn't know how I feel politically, but I do write a lot about also, I don't know, domestic issues, women's issues. Um, the piece I wrote for Dame, um, after the election about the silencing of the Hillary supporters has never been um, written again by anybody else. And people are still talking about how, about that. And yet uh, in June of, I guess, 2016, when I wrote that piece, um, it, this is, you know, at the time when they were trying to convince us that people didn't vote for Hillary because of economic anxiety, you know, not misogyny and, prejudice and you know, specific hatred for Hillary, which was unfounded. Um, so I read about a bunch of stuff. I, I do I do feel, though, that the person was political. I always have. And so I think any of my writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, always has the larger world inside it um, and tries to address whatever it's addressing in the context of how we move in the world. Um, there you go. How I specifically as a white Jewish woman move, et cetera. There you go. Lisa, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It has been informative, and here's hoping that with a positive election result that journalism and writing will actually improve. Yeah, so maybe we can get back to our work and not be 
outraged and upset all the time, but actually sit down and and <laughs> buckle into the stuff we should be doing. Exactly. That would be nice. It would be fantastic. This has been another episode of the Black Tuesday podcast. Be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and vote. Thank you.